Okay, if you would please turn to the book of Galatians, chapter 1. I'll be reading Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 through 10. Galatians 1, 6 through 10. I am astonished that you were so quickly deserting Him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preached to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so I say again now, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Blessed is the reading of God's holy, inspired Word. Father, this morning, may we feel nothing more than what the text beckons us to feel concerning how crucial the truth of the Gospel is to the churches. May we feel it as a church and may we feel it as individual Christians. And may we rejoice because of it. Because only this Gospel that Paul preached saves us to the uttermost. So, help me unfold this text and help us hear what You speak to the churches, to the glory of Your name. Amen. Thank You. You know, we, we live in a time when the truth is not taken seriously. It's a time when many of us Christian people are not used to doctrinal preaching. Are not used to exposition of text on Sunday morning in church life. We're not used to feeling like eternal life and eternal death are at stake while pastors are preaching. And so when many of us evangelicals come across that kind of preaching once in a while, there's almost this flippant like, whoa, that's harsh. That's a little intense. That's not light-hearted enough for my taste. Lighten up, preacher. Look, I asked Jesus into my heart 
And so do these other people as long as we all agree that Jesus is the Savior. We name Him. Let's not take our different approaches to worship or how to live out the Christian life or theology nitpicking. Let's not take that stuff too seriously. I mean, we're all good. Thumbs up to Jesus and leave the rest alone. There's only one problem with that. As we're in our second week of Paul's letter to the Galatians, he has opponents. And the opponents that he has for the souls of the Galatians are professing Christian men who also believe that Jesus died for the sins of the world and that He was resurrected from the dead. And faith in Him is necessary for salvation. That's what they believe. And Paul says, if you listen to what they're teaching you, it will lead to eternal damnation. This is the point in this sermon where some are supposed to say, lighten up. So if you remember, last week we saw the introduction to this book and Paul's salutation. Just, just, just a quick recap. Paul is an apostle directly from Jesus Christ. He is a mouthpiece like Moses. He's been a Christian for 16 years probably before he ever goes on his first missionary trip to peoples, Gentiles who have never heard the Gospel. And that trip was to the churches, plural, in the region of Galatia that he planted. Two years, that journey finally gets back to his home base in Antioch of Syria. And he's there for months on end, maybe even up to a year, and word starts to trickle in that these Christian Jewish preachers went behind you to your churches and they're affirming what you said about Jesus and His death and His resurrection and faith in Him, but they're saying, okay, Paul left out a little bit and we're here to bring that to you, to, to adjust the Gospel a little bit for you Galatian Christians. Paul hears it. He knows who these guys are. He's been around for 16 years. He's dealt with them. And because of the Holy Spirit who dwells within him, he is furious. And he writes this letter to the Galatian churches. And by so doing... Paul blows away the predominant doctrine of our day that says something like this. Christianity is not about right thinking, but it's about sincerity of faith. It's about genuine feelings in relationship with Jesus. You can see it. Okay, the way that's said is, one or the other. Not this, but that. And it's in the air. Everywhere. What's the big deal? I love Jesus. And you love Jesus. And we have different walks. I just, I just go on walking. 
Believing in Jesus, knowing I can't be saved without Him, but I do biblical laws from Moses added to my faith in order to be saved. What's wrong with that? Paul says everything. Or let's just flip it over because Paul gets to the other part at the end. Yes, yes, you can't do anything. So that means, and here's a false doctrine of grace that is floating around in evangelicalism. Some of you know you've had people in, close to your life years ago in a particular church in this area get affected by it. That says grace means you accepted Jesus into your heart and however you live your life, totally irrelevant to whether you belong to Him or not. Well, see, on the one hand, I'm going to add biblical obedience in order to be saved. When I fail, oh no, oh no, okay, I did it again, I feel good. On the other hand, this false doctrine of grace, the Apostle Paul, and thus Jesus, begged to differ with both of those. Quote, chapter 5 of Galatians, Paul will say, Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. You, Galatians, are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. And then he goes on. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Yes, I'm free. It doesn't even matter if I'm a churchgoer. It doesn't matter what I do with my life and my morality or my money or anything. I'm free! Paul says, you're called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. But through love, serve one another. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who live according to the flesh will not inherit the kingdom of God. Alright. Lighten up, Paul. Let's go to our text. Chapter 1, verse 6. Remember, Paul has just come out of the standard greeting section, which was tweaked. You can, you can feel his anger already in it. And you come to the fourth part, the thanksgiving. And we saw last week, there is no thanksgiving for the Galatians. But he goes right into, I am astonished. What's he doing? Stop there for a second. That's Paul's way of saying very powerfully, stop it. Stop listening to these guys. Stop entertaining the theology they're trying to give to you. That's what he's doing. I give my children some chores to do 
while my wife and I are gone, we come back hours later and they're sitting there playing video games and have done no, done no chores. i got a choice. I can say, that's unacceptable. Or, I might say something like, I am amazed! Okay. It's just saying the same thing. Much stronger. They can feel my frustration, my anger. They can feel how unacceptable it is. And that's what Paul means by that phrase, I am amazed. I am astonished. And then, at what? Do you read on? He gives the content of what he's astonished at or what he is saying. Stop it! Let's read verse 6. I am astonished that you were so quickly deserting Him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. So he's saying, as they are entertaining the teaching of these Christian men, Paul warns, to buy into that understanding of the Gospel is to desert God. It is to be running away from God, not toward Him. And he says, I'm astonished that you are, look at the little phrase, so quickly. He says, use your brain, Galatians. Was I with you for all that time and I came back through your churches and spent all that time teaching and you learned nothing? You're so quickly as if you're not even thinking it through. Now note, none of these Christian people in Iconium or Lystra or Derby or Pisidian Antioch, none of them are thinking, hey, let's desert God. We don't want God anymore. But in fact, the temptation of this doctrine is for them to say, let's do religious stuff so that God will be very pleased with us. And Paul says, if you go that route, you are renouncing the Gospel. You are deserting God called you in the grace of Christ. The Judaizers try to say, we have just a little bit of correction to what Paul told you. Little tweaking of the Gospel. And Paul is saying, it is a total undoing of the truth of the Gospel. You are deserting God who called you, and he most likely means this, to live in the grace of Christ. And you are turning to a different gospel. And then Paul catches himself so that... He, no, 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 no. I don't want you to misunderstand what I just said. So, verse 7. Not that there is another gospel. Another one. Okay, I'm not saying that. But there are some who trouble you and they want to distort the Gospel of Christ. There's only one Gospel. And he says, these Christian teachers affirming much 
of what Paul would teach or we would believe. Put a twist on it. And Paul says, it's causing you emotional trouble. Yeah, thought I was saved. Now I'm not sure. That's what the word trouble means there. This internal trouble. Why? Because Paul says it is because of their twisting. Adjustment. Distorting of the true gospel, which makes it a different gospel, which makes it really no gospel at all. For Paul, their teaching, faith is necessary, but you can't stop there. Now you have to go on and pull yourself up by your own bootstraps by performing these works, or you in the end cannot be saved. Paul says it is a total undoing of the gospel of Christ. This is what he's going to say in chapter 3 when he says, Oh, foolish Galatian, who has bewitched you? It's like somebody cast a spell over you. Paul is just, he is absolutely flabbergasted that they're entertaining this teaching. And he goes on to say, Let me ask you, Galatians, something. Did you receive the Spirit by your doing the works of the law or by hearing the message of Jesus Christ and responding with a heart of faith? Are you so foolish then that you think you can begin by the Spirit or by faith and then you go on perfecting yourself by the flesh? It's a total undoing of the truth of salvation. To Paul, these guys come in and they say, yes, Jesus is the Messiah promised in the Scriptures. He is the Son of David. He is the sacrificial Lamb. He died for sins. God raised Him from the dead. You must have faith in Him. But you must go on from there and add to your faith these practices of the Mosaic Law. And he says it's a total undoing of the Gospel. In light of that, simple, simple plea. Don't fall for the deception of our day. It says, a concern for doctrine. It's impersonal. It's for the top 7% of Christians, you know, who might look at the Bible carefully and think theologically. The text says, you, Mary, and Jane, and Jim, Bill, you and Iconium and Lystra and Derby, all of you, the church, if you buy this, you, you and you are personally turning away from 
God. Doctrine is really personal. And then comes Paul's main point in verses 8 and 9. In other words, what has he said so far? He said, stop it. Just get rid of these guys. Don't listen to them anymore. Stop it. And then verses 8 and 9 give the reason why you better stop it. Let's read it. But even if we, apostles, or an angel, not a fallen angel, Uh, An angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we already preached to you on that missionary journey. Then let that angel from heaven or let Peter or let me be accursed. As we have said before, I think he means right there, so I say again now. If anyone... Okay, stop. Got to get it. It's, it's it's, It's an old way of arguing from the greater to the lesser. From the harder to the easier. Okay. Yes, it's hypothetical. Yes, if a circle could become a square, nevertheless, if it did, this is the truth. If it's possible for an apostle to preach to you the false gospel that's contrary to the one he's already preached, or an angel from heaven, trust me, Paul says, they will be damned. Okay, okay, yeah, that ain't going to happen. Okay, got that, guys? Now he goes to, if you believe that, then how much easier it is to believe this. If anyone, those guys in the back of the room as you're reading the letter right now, the Judaizers who are there, If anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Wow. Angel from heaven, an apostle, or anyone. Paul seems to be pretty clear that a preacher's authority is derived from the gospel. It's not in their person. Whether they're called an apostle or a pope or a pastor or an angel, the gospel is the one God has enacted through His Son and then is proclaimed. That's the authority of any teacher or preacher. He pronounces, let them be accursed. It's a translation of the Greek word, anathema, which most of you know the word because the transliteration of that word has come over into English. Anathema means to be set aside for curse, to be under a curse. In the Old Testament, I mean, I could go to Numbers or Deuteronomy and Joshua and Zechariah, etc. The the Hebrew word harem or harem means set aside. And often, therefore, in the Old Testament Hebrew, 
unto a curse. So just, just, just give me one text. Leviticus 27-29. No one devoted who, who is devoted for destruction. There's, there's that word. Harem. <sighs> oh, those Hebrews. Oh, man. To be devoted for destruction from mankind shall be ransomed. He shall surely be put to death. Now, when the Hebrew was translated into Greek 180 years before Jesus came on the scene, it was translated in those passages like that with the Greek word anathema. And so Paul, for instance, uses it this way in Romans 9.3, For I could wish that I myself were accursed. Anathema. And cut off from Christ. Or at the end of 1 Corinthians, when Paul makes that statement, if anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be anathema. Okay. He means eternally condemned. Now, since the last time years ago I taught through this book of Galatians, there's been a new commentary that's come out and it's really good by the New Testament scholar Douglas Moo. So let me, here's two sentences from him on the conclusion of Paul's use here of anathema meaning the wrath of God. The wrath of God, says Paul, will fall on anyone who preaches a gospel different from the gospel that the Galatians have first heard. Whether that other gospel be proclaimed by Paul or by an angel from heaven. So Paul, the very beginning of the body of the letter now. Remember this first paragraph, he's not defining the gospel at all. It's not about that. That will unfold through his letter. This first paragraph is about how crucial the truth of the gospel that he will define is. Because if you add to it, mess it up, and tweak it like these guys are doing, then may you be dedicated to the future coming wrath of God. Lighten up. I can hear it. I feel it myself at times. But Paul, to hell? They're Christian preachers. Paul, they affirm the basic tenets of the faith. They would sign off on a statement of faith that says there's only one God. And Jesus Christ is God's Son who died for sins and was raised from the dead. And you must have faith in Him to be saved. They would say yes and amen. And you are saying, may they be set aside for hell why, Paul? Why are you condemning them to God's eternal curse? It's just about what people eat. Food laws. Or whether they get cut in their body. 
or not, in circumcision. It's just about what they decide to do with Saturday. Starting Friday night. It's just about a sacramental system. It just just, just developed Paul over centuries. It's still about Jesus Christ. What's the big deal if you say, here's the way you ultimately get to heaven through Jesus Christ? I mean, they affirm faith in Him. They affirm the cross. They affirm the resurrection. Why do we need a Protestant Reformation? That's what lots of us would like to ask Paul. And the answer is because it's not just about food laws or Sabbath keeping or circumcision or a sacramental system that you must add to your faith to equal justification before God. It is about the motivation behind those things. That's why Paul's bent out of shape. That's why he's correct that it destroys the truth of the gospel for the salvation of people's souls. God created the world and then humanity made in His image for His glory. And humanity in Adam fell. And we are all born into sin and we have all willfully sinned and failed to glorify God as we ought. We have all willingly spat in His face. And therefore, all of us are subject to God's perfect, holy justice in condemnation. Or to use Paul's word, just anathema. And Jesus came, this is the good news, into the world to save sinners. Hell is one way God upholds His glory, His justice. And the Gospel of Jesus Christ is the other way He upholds His glory and His justice in mercy upon those who will believe. And so, Paul took that message to the region of Galatia and to those churches, those cities, and people believed. He preached it to them saying, Turn from your paganism, from your sin, and trust in Jesus crucified for you where your sin was nailed to the cross because you could do nothing. Trust the eyewitness accounts that God raised this man from the dead in order to vindicate your right standing with Him forever based upon nothing you do. He preached this message. Yes, at the end there is that conditional part. What must we do to be saved? You must come to Him. You must 
believe. You must trust in Him. That's the message. That's why all kinds of people hear it and they will die and they will be forever set aside. Anathema to God's curse. When the Gospel is preached, not everyone is saved. It is those who come and receive God's grace in the Gospel through Jesus with the only hands that could possibly receive it. And they're called the hands of trust in Him. In that work and not in your own. They're called the hands of faith. Not anything you do. I did X, I did Y, and I did Z. Therefore, Jesus saves me. No. It's not the Gospel Paul preached. And that's why if one turns from that Gospel of salvation through Christ alone, through faith alone, and they change that end part, they turn from absolute childlike, I have nothing to give, reliance, dependence upon you, and you offer me a gift, and I say, okay, you, if you change that reliance to, I can offer something to the equation, and you preach that Gospel, Paul says, let them be accursed. Paul is dead serious about the truth of the Gospel. And that's why he refuses to sugarcoat it with something like, well, to each his own. As long as you call yourself a Christian, as long as you name the name of Jesus and I name the name of Jesus, we're all good. No, for Paul... The gospel of grace through Jesus Christ is the only hope for people. And therefore, when it is rejected, or when it is like they're doing, distorted like that, in order to satisfy human pride, it is the most horrific crime in existence. In existence. Being a brother of a murdered brother, this is far worse. And so Paul uses the word anathema. May they be eternally damned. Because the threat of that damnation is absolutely true. And secondly, Paul means to shake these Christians up who are reading the letter. And for all believers down through the centuries who will read this letter, he means for us to be shaken awake 
to the truth of the gospel of God's grace through Jesus Christ. That's verses 6 through 9. One more verse. And then he says in verse 10, For am I now seeking the approval of man? Let's just stop for a moment. You can probably hear an echo of what the Judaizers are saying. See, Paul knew that if he told you men to be ceremonially circumcised, it's a little bit more difficult if it's, you're not eight days old. And he told all of you that you have to change your Gentile diet. He thought you probably wouldn't accept him very well or his message. And so he feared that and he wants approval. And you just Maybe that's what they're saying. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Okay. See, he just said that because he, of what he just said in verses 8 and 9. What he said in verses 8 and 9 about anathema is not going to win him many friends. See, Paul is clearly saying, does this sound like a man pleaser? It would be very easy to please men if I were concerned about tickling their ears. But that is on such a low priority to me over against pleasing God. Too much is at stake for Paul to be a man pleaser. If Paul does not come out straight forwardly against these men and their teaching and their tweaking of the Gospel, then the glory of God and the salvation of sinners is at stake. So Paul's saying, for me to be a true servant of Christ to glorify Him by ad- advancing the true gospel of grace in His saving purposes, I therefore must oppose this false doctrine, this perversion of the gospel with all of my might, whether it pleases people or not. I wonder what He would do today. We have systems built upon how can we please the unchurched so that they would like to be a Christian. And no apologies for it. They write books on how to do it. Paul's point is I don't look to people to determine my message to determine my sermons or my teaching or how to live out Christianity. This is God's Gospel from beginning to end. There is no choice. 
I please God, not man. That's his point. It's 2015, and nothing has changed. There is still only one true gospel. I mean, I can go for hours now, but I won't. But you see, the true gospel that Paul delivered denies this, this thought that's in the air that, that says there are many roads to heaven, to God, to a blissful, eternal life. Yes, there's only one God, but many avenues through religion to get there as long as you're sincere and it makes you a better ethical person. Judaism, it has its way. Islam has its way. Ethical monotheism has its way. There are many roads to become a better person and thus to arrive in heaven one day. It's everywhere. It's everywhere. There are millions of Christians who hear this and they say, yeah. But the Gospel says, no person can go on rejecting the biblical message of Jesus Christ and be saved from God's coming wrath. And what makes this even more sobering is that the different gospel Paul talks about is not some other major world religion like Hinduism or Buddhism or Islam or Judaism. It is a very close counterfeit to the real thing. It was an in-house distortion within the church world by men who called themselves Christians. Or Joel Osteen. Ubiquitous over the TV. And so they say, if you understand, whatever a church is, right? I guess more people attend a building where he's a pastor than any other building in this country every week. Or the seeker sensitive gospel. Well, for the doctrine of the Roman church that has been entrenched for centuries in a sacramental system where jumping through those hoops are mathematically on the side before the equal sign. Faith plus sacramental system equals justification. It's no gospel. It's no gospel. Or the word of faith doctrine that just is so infiltrated Christianity. See, biblical fluency, knowing 
your Bible. Knowing Paul inside and out. Doctrinal maturity. It's not a luxury for a few. It's a must. As Paul said to the old women and the teenage guys and gals and to the middle-aged, all the Christians in the city of Corinth, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants when it comes to evil doing. But in your thinking, be mature. Oh, it's so crucial. There's a tragic pattern that happens seemingly throughout church history. Like in the 1740s in America, we had what is called the First Great Awakening where there was a sovereign outpouring of God's Spirit. And once that strength of the outpouring dissipates, which it does, then you had camps. Then you had a bunch of the Christians that loved the feeling and the manifestations that would happen in meetings under Whitfield and Jonathan Edwards and John Wesley and hundreds of other pastors. They loved the feeling. And the feeling, not the doctrine, became the thing. It just happens over and over where God moved, did real things in in many of the people, and then you never know who's false, but it comes out later. And there becomes this impatience with biblical clarity and doctrinal purity. Numbers of us saw this happen in the 1990s with what was labeled the Toronto Blessing. Starting out of there, but from the East Coast all the way to Los Angeles, there were churches all over this country that were having church on every day of the week. And they would be packed, even from people with other churches, because there's a meeting. So-and-so is there. The music is good. And we might be there for three hours or four hours because we want to feel the Spirit. And I went to some of these meetings... And what I found, yes, and I can tell you even, it's amazing how God works through our brokenness. But what hit me overall about them was that with them was almost no real biblical exposition. And worse, wrong, misleading teaching. Now, when people are in the midst of that, or remnants of it even today, and I don't even know what the next movement is, there's this air about that Christian. It's about relationship, brother. Get all theological or doctrinal. It's about the Holy Spirit, man. There are many churchly roads that lead people to desert Him who calls you to live in the grace of Christ. 
you know, thinking about this phenomenon for 30 years or so, which I have, and I, I was born again into a very experiential-based, not doctrinal or biblical-based type of Christianity. But thinking about it in my own journey a lot, it, it, I, I think what happens in many of us evangelical Christian minds is, look, man, I want real Christianity, and trust me, I do. You know, let me put a parenthesis in here. Doctrine, the true gospel of Christ, is meant to affect you emotionally and in your thinking and in your desiring. Okay? I affirm it all. But it is this pursuit of emotion. Bible exposition or I heard that band is over here and we can sing and lift our hands for three hours. What are you going to choose? It's that kind of emotionalism detached from truth. So I think what happens in lots of minds is look, clear doctrine, clear biblical, what did the author mean? That takes thinking. When you've got to listen to expositional preaching, you've got to think and thought. Thinking, I think in many of their minds, it's deemed to be the enemy of feeling. And I don't want an enemy of feeling. I want to worship. I want to feel. And so they resist thinking, saying, it's about relationship with Jesus. It's about loving Him. It's about how my heart feels towards God. And so study, reading of the Bible carefully, hearing doctrinal or expositional preaching is a threat to that experience. That's what I think goes on in the minds of many. And they have children and they raise them in church. And from 7th grade through 12th grade, churches are packed with youth groups. Big. And no wonder statistics tell us, 10 years down the road, you'd be lucky if 2 out of 10 still go to church anywhere. Because the next generation has an extremely fuzzy idea, unclear, foggy, idea of what the gospel of Jesus Christ really is. And therefore, they are wide open to the doctrine of the Galatian, or what we call Galatianism, or the word of faith teaching, or the doctrine of the unbiblical grace, or the seeker-sensitive gospel. And so no wonder, as I'm closing, Paul was so adamant to his pastor friends when this is the last time I'm going to see you and he gathered them together and he preached to them. And he said to them in Acts 20, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you pastors. 
not sparing the flock. And I can almost see him crying. And from among your own selves sitting here will arise men speaking twisted things in order to draw away the disciples after them. No wonder Paul said right before that. Remember, verse 10 of our text, I'm a servant of Christ. If I tried to please men, I wouldn't be a servant of Christ. He said to them right before that, I did not shrink. Oh, it's tempting. I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. There is no other gospel, doctrine, biblical teaching is crucial. It is not impersonal. I close. I am astonished that you, you personally, are so quickly deserting Him called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. That's personal. Oh, may God's grace make us Bible people hungry to memorize, to know. Paul, why are you so upset? What is really at stake be a people who love Scripture so much we can't help but worship the God that unfolds right there. Father, thank You that Your grace through and in Your Son, Jesus Christ, will complete that work in Your people until His second coming. You are good and therefore in You and in all that was said now, we who believe trust to the glory of Your name. Amen. Amen.